On this edition of Security Management Highlights, is your organization's social media strategy up to snuff when it comes to effectively communicating during a crisis? Everyone that has a smart device is now a potential reporter of an incident. We should all think twice before clicking on suspicious-looking emails in our inbox. But which countries fare the best in terms of catching these messages that are really from hackers? They've just opened up something that exposes themselves and their computer to someone with malicious intent. We speak to Assistant Editor Megan Gates about her feature story on phishing training. Then, the private police force that patrols the Hollywood Walk of Fame shares its strategies for keeping arrest rates down. We have a huge number of homeless people, and that's been really challenging. And longtime ASIS member Joe Mascheco tells us what he thinks has changed and stayed the same in the organization. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Virtually every organization has a so-called social media strategy, but does it go far enough to help keep the company's customers, employees, and stakeholders informed during a crisis? We spoke to Jim Leffler, CPP, and co-author of this month's cover story about making your social media strategy a part of the greater business plan. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So how is social media changing the way that businesses interact with individuals and with each other? It provides unfettered access to a global audience between individuals and other individuals, uh, businesses and businesses, individuals and businesses. So it's no longer like 100 years ago where, uh, you know, a business was pretty much a local or regional uh, type operation. Now it could be a global operation, even though the infrastructure of that organization is really just two people in in a spare room in, in the back of their house. They now have a global presence, and that also carries with it reputational risk issues and things like that. It's definitely something to to be aware of. There's also uh, global access during emergencies. For instance, during the Haiti earthquake, individuals uh, from universities were down there performing research, and during the earthquake and after the earthquake, they were trying to get in touch with their respective universities, and social media helped out because of the traditional landlines were down, satellite phones were up and down, telecommunication equipment was not working the way they wanted it to, internet was spotty, but social media through smart devices and things like that, they were able to follow up and you know contact the individuals on the ground. It has a lot of potential. There's both positive and negative aspects because individuals now have worldwide instantaneous contact with others, and everyone that has a smart device is now a potential reporter of of an incident. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a natural disaster. It could be almost anything. If somebody's at a restaurant and the server of the food is rude, if that's being captured on a smart device, that's now a potential reputation risk issue for that local business. So the advent of more powerful technology being released to the public, it has both positive and negative aspects to it. That's how it's transforming the way people and businesses are engaging with one another. It allows for instantaneous contact and it has ripple effects through the implications of actions down the road. So during an emergency, you can't just jump onto Twitter or Facebook. You have to have a way to execute the strategy for these communication plans already in place. So can you talk more about that and what employers can do to make sure that they're prepared? If you're starting out, you need to treat it as a company-wide program effort. So it's a programmatic 
long-term strategy that is not just siloed into one or two groups and they're the ones making all the decisions. It's very cloistered as far as planning and implementation. It has to be company-wide, has to be inclusive in nature so that you bring all of the appropriate stakeholders to play and you make sure that whatever processes are being developed, they're accurate, they're effective, and it's going to achieve the goals that you're looking to achieve. My recommendation would be to treat it as an actual project management effort. Traditional project management approaches, you have to identify who needs to be involved, role assignment. Role identification is really very important, and it has to be done in depth so that if one person's on vacation or one person's sick or you have a person on vacation and someone else is sick, you have enough people to actually step into roles and they can effectively perform what needs to be done. Essentially, you have an established strategy, even if it is a bit chaotic with respect to the incident itself, the individuals are able to apply their knowledge and they can reduce that chaos to a much more manageable effort. After all that exercising is done, you have after-action reports so that you can evaluate what worked and what didn't work so that you can correct those items and maybe it's a failure of the strategy or maybe it's a failure of equipment or we need more training on this or just on this one day three people were out and we didn't have anyone to do this and somebody had to learn this at the spur of the moment. Then it may be one of the most important aspects but it has to be built into existing plans, processes throughout the organization so that it's not something special that's being done. It's a routine work function. Yes, and because we are so connected via social media, suddenly the facts can turn into misinformation with a click of a button or the swipe of a finger. How are organizations overcoming this challenge? The nature of our organizations today, they're not isolated. We're truly living in a in a global environment. The social media really helps because of that global audience and the instantaneous nature of transferring information. We have situations where emergency update situational reports can be transmitted very quickly and not all of the information is 100% accurate, but that's part of what needs to be discussed in the strategy of social media from a corporate or an organizational perspective is how to identify what's accurate, what's not accurate, and basically they have to vet that information. There's an enormous amount of transference of information from organizations to individuals, communities. If you are posting information about either a situation or an experience or an incident, you have an obligation to not only be accurate, but appreciate that your perspective may not be the full picture. You're just catching one perspective of that whole onion of truth. And, you know, if you have five people viewing the same incident, you may, and often do, have five completely different perspectives. And if each individual gets on to social media, they provide a different image of what happened. They have a responsibility to be careful about how they present that information. That was Jim Leffler, CPP, a consultant for Zantech IT Services and co-author of the book Organizational Resilience, Managing the Risks of Disruptive Events, A Practitioner's Guide. And we're doing something a little different with our editor's stories. With Megan this month, we're going to talk about how she kind of came upon and formulated her feature story on phishing training for employees. Hey, Megan, how you doing today? 
I'm good, Holly. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate you stopping by for our, our first edition of the newly relaunched podcast. Tell us a little bit about the origins of this story and how you decided to write about it. So this was something that our editor, Terry, had asked me to keep on my radar to put something together. And actually, when I was at the RSA conference earlier this spring, I attended a random session that was hosted by Chris Romeo from Cisco. He was talking about the internal security program that he had helped create at Cisco that they got more than 20,000 people to voluntarily participate in, which I thought was, you know, super cool and very impressive if you can get 20,000 people to do any sort of training willingly. So I went to his session and it was great. It was very interesting. And I thought, you know, this might be a great way to talk about social engineering and what employers can help do to create programs that, you know, benefit them and also teach their employees sort of good cyber hygiene habits. So that's kind of where that stemmed from. So when it comes to cybersecurity training, the topic you wrote about spear phishing, emails, that's one of the biggest problems, isn't it, in terms of cyber attacks and how hackers are getting in? Recently, over the last couple of years, we've really seen sort of the rise of social engineering attacks, definitely through phishing emails. So really catering an email to try and trick someone into clicking on a link or opening like a malicious file that then installs something on their computer. We've seen, you know, some really, really effective ones, people going and copying out what appears to be a common web address for somebody's work that they might have found on LinkedIn and sending them a malicious file that someone might think is from their coworker and actually it's from some complete and total stranger and they've just opened up something that exposes themselves and their computer to someone with malicious intent. And so it was surprising, um, you know, when I was researching this because I really wanted to, besides speaking with Chris Romeo sort of about what they did at Cisco, I also talked to Gary Davis from Intel who just sponsored a big quiz and they had several hundred thousand participants see if they could catch and identify phishing emails that were sent to them and a majority of people did really, really bad. <laughs> um, it was actually kind of embarrassing to read through the results and sort of scary <laughs> in a sense, uh, but it showed that by far the U.S. and Canada are not where we need to be when it comes to recognizing phishing emails. The United States came in 27th out of all the countries and Canada came in 26th. Surprisingly, France, Sweden, Hungary, the Netherlands, and Spain did the best. Um, and when I was chatting with Gary for my piece, he said that definitely in Europe, there's sort of a different security mindset. People are much more mindful when they open things and they read through them than people tend to be for some reason in the United States and maybe Canada. Well, that's encouraging for our European listeners. I guess those of us in the United States and Canada have some work to do. So how did you decide that you would write this article sort of as a how-to? Was that for people like us who might open these emails too often? Yeah, well, I, definitely I thought it might, you know, do everyone a small favor. But no, it was one of those times where you get into a topic and you have so much information and it's like, I need to come up with some way to sort of organize this so I can pare it down to what's important that people should know. And so that's kind of where I started developing the different steps that people could use and especially talking to Chris and then also Dan Lorman from Security Mentor who helped design different training programs for the state of Michigan. That was very helpful, sort of their advice and getting their thoughts to organize it into the various steps. So like our first step, you know, starting small, you know, finding your focus and sort of building your content around that particular focus and using content that supports that focus. And then going on to step number two, making it engaging and fun because you can create a training program, but you also want to make one that people want to complete, that they complete it and they learn from it. So probably showing 10 million PowerPoint slides is not your way to go. <laughs> and then going off of that, remembering to keep it short and small. If you're doing this at work, you have a million other things that you need to be doing 
as well during your day. So you want something short that you can sort of focus on and that you'll be able to remember it. So cutting it down so it's no longer than 20 minutes is really, really key. And then also asking for help. When I talked to Chris Romeo from Cisco, he mentioned that initially they wanted to create lots of videos for sort of their training platform and they didn't really have a lot of video expertise, but they found people within Cisco, which has Cisco TV, who were willing to help them and, you know, who did have that expertise. So reaching out within your company to your colleagues, you know, because lots of people have skills that you might not even be aware of. But if it sounds interesting and fun, they're probably willing to help you out. Then another really important thing is, you know, getting executive support. If the higher ups are willing to support you and say that this is important and I want everyone on my staff to do it, and then we're going to talk about it, that is crucial to getting people to do it and to make training a priority. I think Dan Lorman gave a great example of being in a cabinet meeting with Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. And he asked everyone in the room who had taken their security training and no one raised their hand. I can only imagine how embarrassing and awkward that had to be. (laughs) And then, uh, Governor Snyder, he told everyone that he had taken it, he'd really liked it and learned a lot, and that he expected everyone in the room and their direct reports to have taken it by the next meeting. And by the next meeting, everyone had done that. So getting that high-level executive support is really, really key. Too bad we can't all have the governors of each state asking employees to be more vigilant. So our our final point was recognizing participants. People like to be acknowledged for the work that they do. And they also like to show off when they've done something really well. So recognizing when people complete training and then when they remember it and use it, that is a really great way to people to not only do the training themselves, but to encourage other people to do it. And if you can make it sort of a, a competitive thing within your company to have good security and cyber hygiene, that's that's a win-win situation for everyone. Did your sources say anything about calling out people who weren't doing a good job because I've I talked to some cyber experts who said they would make it known which employees had the worst and the best rates of of opening fake spear phishing emails when they were trying to train them on on what to look for. That's not anything that anybody specifically mentioned, but one thing that Chris did mention was using sort of the natural competitiveness within your executives. Say you have like six or seven vice presidents who all are in charge of their own departments, maybe making a leaderboard of who has finished the training and whose department is doing the most training, and then make it so all those VPs can see it. That might encourage them, oh, our department's falling a little bit behind. Maybe we should pick it up a little bit because we want to be on the same level as everyone else, if not doing better. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Megan, and explaining your article. Hopefully, we'll all think twice now before clicking on a suspicious-looking email. Fingers crossed. So, thanks. It was great chatting with you, Holly. The Hollywood Walk of Fame is a Los Angeles icon where the names of renowned celebrities line the streets, but also located on those streets are officers from Andrews International, a private armed security force. When Andrews first began patrolling the streets of the Hollywood Entertainment Business Improvement District in 2007, it noticed there were several repeat offenders taking up time and resources. Steven Seiler, Executive Security Director at Andrews International, explained how the private security force is making its mark in the community by working to improve quality of life issues. Basically, our task is to improve the quality of life. And so we do that through enforcement when necessary. Uh, We do outreach to the homeless, the tourist community, and the business community. And, of course, we work very closely with local law enforcement, specifically the LAPD. So to that end, I go to their crime control meeting every Tuesday morning. Um, we attend meetings with the business community and, and a whole huge group of homeless outreach providers. For that first year, we made uh, 2,349 arrests. These are all private person arrests. And as I said, we're tar- targeting quality of life, drinking, urinating, trespass, things like that. 
we actually blunder into anything that the police do because we're out on patrol. So we've arrested a murder suspect, tourist bandit, bank robber. We have a huge number of homeless people, and that's been really challenging. Early on, we realized that there's very limited resources for the homeless. So we bonded with these homeless outreach groups right all the way back in 2007. Some of the main ones are PATH, which is People Assisting the Homeless, the Department of Mental Health, the Veterans Administration. It goes on and on. Uh, Gay and Lesbian Center, all the area churches here. And we actually hosted meetings here. And at first it was kind of, you know, everybody with crossed arms and bad body language because we're security and we could be considered the enemy of the outreach people because the homeless people are their clients and they see us as maybe harassing them. Well, they learned really early on that we became a part of the outreach community. We're often the very first semi-official person to meet a new person in town. We found countless people down on the sidewalks with heart attacks, strokes, all kinds of things. So we get them medical attention. And like I said, this partnership that we have has now evolved to the point, I think it's groundbreaking. I don't think anyone in the country is doing exactly what we're doing. There's a new program uh, called Laura's Law, and the LAPD is able to submit names for people in need of intervention. And hopefully, instead of going to jail, they'll go into to a shelter and treatment. We're actually providing files to the LAPD with backgrounds on these people's photographs. It's just started, and I've given them 22 files so far of some of the most needy people, and one of them's already been approved for a conservatorship. So this is big, it's cutting edge, and we're pretty excited about it. So what do you tell your officers who may be new to law enforcement or even retired law enforcement who may not be used to dealing with these quality of life issues on a day-to-day basis? We actually do make a really strong effort to treat people with respect. And, you know, what I tell our officers, we, we deal with a lot of mentally ill people and substance abuse is huge. But mental illness is a huge issue, and there's a lot of violence that goes along with that. You know, I tell my officers, they're weak and you're strong, so turn the other cheek. They're screaming about your mom or whatever. Turn the other cheek. There's nothing to be gained by engaging and, and yelling back at someone. In fact, if you just, just stay professional, they'll, their eyes will wander off and they'll start yelling at the fire extinguisher or something. So we have a good rapport with a, a lot of homeless people. They don't see us as the enemy. They actually see us as a, a friend and a resource. When we met back in May during the media tour ahead of the ASIS seminar and exhibits, you told me about a time when you actually got involved with the Secret Service and your cooperation extended to that level where you guys actually were instrumental in possibly protecting the President of the United States. Back on March 12th of this year, we had a guy, he's called Shreds, that's his street name. He contacted one of our officers and said that a man who dresses as a Spider-Man character at Hollywood and Highland had a gun. We had seen that guy earlier. He'd been out on the boulevard passing out documents about the President, President Obama. They were very disturbing. It was really a mental rant and it it had the air of violence about it. So that was really a concern because the president was coming to film the Jimmy Kimmel show that day. So as I said, we have all these relationships. I was able to call uh, Captain Zarconi, who's the Hollywood commander, on his cell phone and tell him about it. He immediately called the Secret Service. We all started searching for this uh, character. LAPD found him. Fortunately, he had three warrants and they were able to uh, take him into custody. So the president came, did his show and left. And it was just a good example of the cooperation and just, I felt like, oh, this is Probably nothing, but I wouldn't be able to sleep if something happened. So luckily we had the resources to call to, and the LAPD did a great job, and we got this guy in custody. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It was a pleasure talking to you, Holly. We've come to the final part of this month's podcast, The Member Spotlight. If you're interested in being interviewed for this segment or know someone you think would be a good fit, send us an email at smpodcast at asisonline.org. The member I spoke with for our flagship episode told me about the evolution of ASIS from a somewhat small, American-based organization to a global phenomenon. 
I'm here with Joe Mashuko. He's a longtime member of ASIS International. Joe, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Holly. I appreciate it. Yes, and since you've been a part of this organization since you said 1984, tell us how you've been involved and also how you've seen the organization grow, advance, and what you think the state of the association is right now. Thank you. So I joined the organization in uh, the summer of 1984, as I just said before Holly was born. So that I guess that makes me a member now for, uh, is that 31 years? Check my math. I think that's 31 years as a member of ASIS. And of course, when I joined ASIS, it was the American Society for Industrial Security. And at that time, it was an organization very U.S.-centric. It was an organization that was also very much the good old boys network of retired police officers, retired FBI, and you would go to a chapter meeting, and if, if you were not a retired law enforcement officer, you felt very much out of place. You would walk through the door of a meeting, and first of all, in those days, all the meetings included cocktail hours before the meeting, whether the meeting was at lunch or dinner. But 31 years ago, people drank at lunch, as amazing as that might seem. And in those days, these security managers had staffs. They had secretaries. They had assistants. So they could leave the office, you know, at 11 and come back at 3 o'clock, uh, having had two or three martinis, and it was fine. Imagine that happening today. So it's not just that ASIS has evolved over the last 31 years. You know, as a people, we've evolved significantly. So today, hopefully, if it's your first time attending a chapter meeting anywhere in the world, you're recognized as, an, as, a, as a guest. Someone will approach you and introduce you around the room and, and make you feel very, very welcome and part of a community that is really dedicated to the uplifting of the security profession on a global scale. So I've seen that occur over the years. The additions of the, the certifications of the PCP and the PCI have been more inclusive so that now folks that are vendors of security equipment, as an example, can get board certified and increase their credibility with their customers. And in fact, in my company and we have five salespeople and it's a requirement that they become uh, PSPs. Uh, it's, it's one of their job requirements and indeed right now all of them are. I think that and of course the, the worldwide growth and the change of the ASIS name to ASIS International and the inclusiveness of I think we have, is it is it 90 chapters outside the U.S., Holly? Let's check with our membership department. We'll get back to you on that one, but that sounds fairly accurate. I believe it is 90 <laughs> chapters, and in fact, in uh, Mexico, just this year, we added two, two additional chapters which is uh, we're very we're very proud of. Thank you so much for those insights. The inclusivity is is really something I think everyone should be trending toward, but especially in security, we're all kind of looking out for each other in a way and we all face common threat. Tell us a little bit about your company, Security Integrations, what you all do, but more importantly, what kind of trends are you seeing? What kind of needs are your clients coming to you with? So I founded Security Integrations in October of 1992. So I guess you were born then, weren't you, Holly? Yes, you were six years old. Uh, so in October of 1992, I started Security Integrations, and we are what's called in the business a systems integrator, which means that we specialize in designing, installing, and maintaining large integrated security systems, and our specialty is physical security systems such as card access, closed-circuit television, visitor management, parking control, photo ID, etc. And what we like to do is find enterprises that are somewhat large, and we try to design a system that a single security officer can manage all the comings and goings of all the traffic gates, of all the turnstiles, and so on throughout the entire campus with an easy-to-understand user interface. 
So what are some of the threats your customers tell you that they're facing right now in today's day and age? You know, although there's, of course, we're all concerned about the threat of violence from outside an organization, the fact of the matter is, is that what we really try to do is help our customers provide a safe and secure workplace for their staff, their contractors, and their visitors. And typically, the threat that we're most concerned about mitigating is from within. The biggest threat is the person in the cubicle, two cubicles down from you. Everyone brings their life's baggage to work with them every day. And sometimes that baggage is is happy and has got smiley faces on it, and sometimes not so much. What we try to do is assist our, our HR customers, human resources customers, as well as security management customers and facilities management customers to be able to have systems in place where they can recognize perhaps when there's a change in personality. So our goal is to assist our customers provide a safe and a secure workplace. So we're looking forward to the annual seminar in Anaheim. Will we see you there and and what can we expect from you? Yes, I've attended every seminar with the exception of one since 1990. Is that correct? Yes, everyone since 1990 and a few previous to that. So I remember when the seminars were a lot smaller. I wouldn't miss the annual seminars and exhibits for almost anything. I bring nine people from my company, and we scour the trading floor looking for new and innovative ideas. Additionally, I am a volunteer leader within ASIS, and so we will have meetings with our senior leadership on a global level. Chapter award ceremonies will take place, and we'll be part of that as well. But the annual seminar is a very exciting thing, and it's a must-not-miss on my calendar every year. Awesome. Well, we look forward to seeing you there. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Holly. It was nice to have met you. That's all for this month. I just want to thank you guys for resubscribing to Security Management Highlights and hearing some of the new features it has to offer. If you haven't already checked us out on iTunes, make sure you go on there and find us. Click the subscribe button. That way you don't miss out on any of the fun. Did you love the new format? Did you hate it? Whatever it is, we want to hear your thoughts. So send us a line at smpodcast at asisonline.org. And also be on the lookout throughout the month for bonus segments and episodes in addition to the monthly podcast. That's all for now. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell. See you next time. 